0: We have Council West? Here. Okay. Then we have uh, Council Brownson? Here. Councilor Rocca? Here. Councilor Herman? Here. Mayor Jones?
1: Here. Okay, thank you. All right, so this evening, before we get into the main uh, agenda and reports of Councilors, we have a presentation I'll, I'll ask Mr. Estes to make some comments uh, before, I, before he passes it off to Chief Spaulding, but there have been quite a lot of questions that members of the council have received recently, uh, which stem to the um, George Floyd uh, killing and the and protests that have been seen around the country, including in Astoria. There have been lots of good questions from our community members regarding policy and training and uh, use of force and many other things and it is it, very timely you know, just as i uh, left work today at about five thirty to go home for dinner before city council uh, at least two sheriff's vehicles were speeding east through town and uh while i was eating dinner at home I put on the scanner and there was uh, an, an incident which i nature of which i don't understand yet but there was a an incident where someone was injured and the person was being very combative and was uh, there was a lot of chatter on the radio from the sheriff's department about restraining the individual, and so it's you know certainly something that's very topical and timely. And I know the community members want to have an opportunity to hear from our chief of police on some of, those, some of those policy issues. So, Mr. Estes.
0: So, as Mayor Jones mentioned, there's been some discussion and questions coming from citizens and community members about this issue. And I want to note that as questions or comments came to the police department or to Chief Spaulding, he has personally responded uh, either in writing or or phoning folks uh, our citizens to be able to uh, provide them with information um, as it came along. I believe that and I know that we have a good set of professionals who work at the Astoria Police Department and we have responsive professional chiefs uh, in both Chief Spalding and also Deputy Chief Halverson. Uh, They have my trust and support. I would note that Chiefs uh, Spalding and Halverson have met with me and, and have had conversations discussing the policies uh, of the Astoria Police Department and their protocols in implementing those, those policies. I feel that tonight they're going to be able to answer m- many of the questions that have come up uh, and also to provide information uh, to our citizens of Astoria with regards to uh, police uh, protocols and also with regards to some of the protests that we've seen within our community in terms of how they're handled. So I'm gonna turn it over to Chief uh, Spaulding, uh, who is with Deputy Chief Halverson, uh, to be able to give the presentation. All
2: right, uh, thank you, Mayor, member, council, members of council, uh, just following your police chief, and first off, can everybody hear me okay? Sorry.
1: Councilors, can you? Uh... We can't you know Chief Spaulding, him. just nod if you can. Like no, no, okay, the, we're working the, on that the,
3: then. Yeah, there's no video or audio.
0: Is the mic on? Jeff? There should be a red light at the top. That's the switch at the top.
2: about now. Testing one, two, three.
3: It's not really there. The, the video's gone too. It was there before the meeting started. I saw the pair of them sitting there, but I just see a story of city council logo up on the uh, screen.
1: Give us a minute. We're working on it.
0: I think you're gonna need to pick up the mic, Chief.
2: Okay. How about now? Can you guys hear me now?
0: Yeah, you'll
3: need to speak up a little bit, but I can see you and hear you.
0: Or maybe if you I think if you you need a have mic.
2: Okay, how about now? I see a it's thumbs great. up. Yes. Okay. All right. I'll go ahead and start again. I was almost done, but um With that being said, uh, Mayor, members of council, Jeff Spalding, your police chief, and uh, seated to my right, as a reminder, is Eric Halverson, my deputy chief. And throughout the presentation, um, after I touch on a topic, I will ask my deputy chief also to weigh in if I've missed something or he would like to add something as well. We've both been working very closely on this topic and fielding questions, and uh, he's been a great resource for me, not to mention the historical knowledge. So I just wanted to share that. So I'll start off by just saying thank you for this opportunity to present information again on this very important topic. Uh, This uh, is a follow up to the last presentation. Uh, Most of the material is new. It is uh, based on information and questions that I've received not only from uh, members of the community but also from our city council and our mayor. Uh, I'd also like to remind anybody that might be watching that uh, information from the previous meetings that I've provided to Council is available on the city's website along with the police department's website that touches on many of the topics that uh, people have questions about, so I would encourage you to look at those documents as well. Some of the topics that we'll be talking about tonight do fall into uh, what we refer to as kind of the legal gray area. Um, So I just remind uh, those that our city attorney, Blair Henningard, is on the phone as well. So if there's some questions that I can't answer, I'll defer to him. And if there's some questions that maybe require some more research, I'd be more than happy to uh, dig into those and then provide a response at the next meeting. So uh, in between each topic, I have uh, quite a few different topic areas. I will pause and uh, members of council, if uh, you would like to join in so we don't get too lost in all the data, you know, I I prefer to do it that way, just so if there are questions or concerns, anything you want to share with me, um, and then we'll just jump to the next topic as well. And again, don't hesitate to interrupt me at any part during the presentation. I'd be more than happy to answer the questions. So uh, I will just start out by just talking a little bit about our protest response and plan. We've been asked questions about um, do we have a plan, what is our protest response, what is our philosophy, and I will say that Um, One one of the most important things we do is even before we even have a protest, in most of the cases, you know, we've been fortunate to have the opportunity to work very closely with the protest organizers. Um, Groups like Inca and some of the other ones have been peaceful protesters. They've worked with us. We encourage them to uh, find the appropriate locations to keep them safe, keep our community safe, and uh, that's worked very well. Uh, in some of the more recent uh, protest events, we've actually had some conversations with some of the individuals who we even asked if the police department would like to be involved as part of their uh, movement. And um, I explained to them that, you know, we, um, regardless of the position we take personally, it's, it's critical that as a, a police organization that we remain neutral and apolitical, although we will support them the best they, we can to keep them safe and to uh, be present for any needs that they might have. Uh, It's no surprise that we are seeing a different trend in protests in general. What we've typically seen in the past are peaceful protests, uh, individuals that may be protesting government or the police or just simply uh, protesting towards a cause, but the, the new Uh, Trend that we're now seeing are the addition of counter protesters and that has uh, created some additional challenges So uh, in addition to trying to prevent, you know, violence from some of protest groups Which we haven't seen a lot of now we also have to uh, work towards preventing violence between the two different protesters And the counter protesters so that's added some additional challenges as well. Uh, additionally, we're, we're seeing new trends in crowd management. Crowd management is the new term versus crowd control. And it it's, it's, uh, involves a lot of different areas of uh, dealing with the whole issue. A lot of it is, is how we uh, present ourselves, how we uh, manage the crowd versus trying to control and, and avoiding arrests and those types of things. Uh, one of the things that, you know, we uh, hear a lot is, you know, uh, police officers come to, you know, these some of these protests, and you hear more in Portland, but they come to these protests looking like they're ready for a fight just because of their gear. Um, oftentimes, police officers are required to wear safety gear, and as a matter of fact, it's actually a requirement of OSHA that officers have to wear certain protective equipment for special events like that. So there's a, there's a reason for it. Um, but part of the uh, current conventional wisdom is that Uh, We want to come into these situations and have as low key profile as possible and to send the message that we are uh, there to be neutral and just to keep the peace and avoid um, those types of confrontations with us being the targets. So um, one of the, probably part of the biggest conversations we've had over the past couple weeks where I've been fielding a lot of email, a lot of phone calls, what have you, is our actual response to these events. Uh, one of the things that we do try to avoid is actually engaging with people who are um, in many cases would be the counter protesters or those that have in some cases violent tendencies. And there are different uh, types of low-level offenses that we have made a conscious decision to actually not engage in. And these are the types of things like whether it be jaywalking, um, loud noise, um, very, very minor, minor um, confrontations with individuals. Um, It's a, uh, there's multiple reasons why we do that. Number one, we don't want to engage with the individual who oftentimes may be looking for a fight and looking for a challenge and wants to have um, their cause um, picked up by the media. And so that's not something we're interested in doing. Um, There are other reasons as well and part of that is simply just it's resource intensive and when we have limited number of resources in terms of officers, It uh, takes time for an officer to engage somebody, either to pull them out of the crowd and issue a citation or take somebody to jail. So oftentimes what we will do if the offense is uh, uh, at a level that we choose to engage, we will uh, pull the person aside, take the information, document it in a police report, and then we will send it to the district attorney's office who will make the ultimate decision whether somebody will be charged. Um, what, you know, this, this in, in effect has the same effect as if an officer were to make a physical arrest. Um, what we're seeing right now in the COVID-19 times is that um, when we take relatively low level type offenses to the county jail, they issue them a citation, release them, and they also encourage us to t- release people on citations. So uh, arrests are the exception. And it's, uh, it works out well in terms of you know, uh, managing our resources accordingly. So we have to be careful on that. Um, there are some specific types of uh, events there are types of uh, crimes that people are asking us about. Why aren't we taking certain mm-hmm. actions? Uh, we've been involved in a lot of conversations over the last couple of weeks with our city attorney, with the district attorney's office, doing our own internal research. And um, we will adjust our policies as needed. But I will tell you that some of the things that uh, we hear uh, relatively frequently are such things as, you know, can an individual use a bullhorn and shout right in somebody's face? And in most cases, uh, depending on what they're saying, we can't regulate the, their freedom of speech. But the conduct can potentially reach the level of a disorderly conduct. Same as some other offenses, such as spitting on somebody, um, and other types of uh, low-level offenses. Um, so I'll get into some of those in, in a little bit here. So we have to be very careful about what we're um, able to engage in and make sure that it's uh, of the appropriate magnitude. But at the, at the end of the day, there there is a line that we will not allow people to cross. And that involves any, any violence, um, especially uh, something more than a low-level assault. Um, any other inappropriate behavior that rises to the level of at least a misdemeanor type crime and we, we will take action in those certain circumstances. Again, there will be occasions where if it's something that we feel that we can just simply document it and send it to the district attorney's office uh, for filing, that's that's an option that we, we may want to consider as well in order to manage the, the type of event. So um, lo- the other part of our crowd management uh, philosophy is also based on our policy. We have an extensive policy manual of over 500 pages. One of the particular policies is uh, First, First Amendment um, response. So that's a policy that we also refer to as well when we talk about a plan. Um, Cover a couple more of the, uh, we also talked about some of the other potential violations that can include, or misdemeanors can include disorderly conduct, as I mentioned, uh, menacing, and um, harassment. So that would be unwanted physical contact, such as the uh, spitting. So I'm going to talk uh, about open carry in a little bit here, too, because that's that's been a hot topic as well. Um, I'm going to pause there just for a second to see if there's any questions or thoughts. Okay, uh, so another area I know that's uh, very hey, concerned. Chief.
1: Is, oh, sorry. Hey, Chief. Um, well, since you, you touched on the um, behavior, like shouting in someone's face with a bullhorn and then the line of a physical altercation, so maybe you're going to address it later, but regards to the physical altercation that took place Saturday a week ago, I know there's been a lot of questions out in the in the community about about this, the status of that and how decisions are made, whether to take action at the time, and then how, how people don't really understand, well, what, how is the decision made whether to file charges? So can you explain a bit how investigations are done and how they get sent across the street to the uh, DA?
2: Absolutely, so in that particular event, it was, a, um, it was a, a kind of a mini melee at the time, and there was a lot of individuals involved. Actually, we have video from several sources Uh, We had two officers that were working overtime that day. One of the officers actually observed most of the conduct. Um, There was a lot of moving pieces there, and there appeared to be uh, from the video sources and at least from the officers' um, perception at the time that there was uh, conduct on both sides from the protesters and counter-protesters that could be considered uh, (coughs) instigating the event. Again, this has not been fully investigated, has not been fully um, reported yet. We're still working on that. Mm -hmm. I can tell you at the time, and I'm not going to mention any individual's names, but at the time the officer taking the report uh, had a conversation with one of the Uh, victims of the incident, and she told the officer at the time she was not looking to have anybody punished and she simply wanted the report documented. So the officer at that time took the information, advised her that he was going on vacation and that he would pick this up when he got back. In the meantime, um, I believe that individual may have a different feeling about this now, so it doesn't mean that she can't change her mind and we're still going to pursue it. But the report will be, uh, has already been documented by two of the officers that were there. The officer that's on vacation is returning towards the end of the week. He will finish his report, compile all the video evidence, and this will be presented to the district attorney's office who ultimately makes a decision um, who and if uh, anybody should be charged. Um, Eric, you have anything to add to that? I don't really have any- Does that answer your question, Mayor? Thank you. Okay. Thank you. So, um, the next area that has raised a lot of concern is the whole issue of um, open carry or carrying firearms or displaying firearms. In Oregon, as many of you know, Oregon is an open carry state, which means that uh, an individual has the right to carry a firearm on their um, hip or wherever they want, for that matter. It also means that an individual can carry a firearm in or out of a holster. They can have a holster that's, you know, at at their side. They can't point at anybody. That's a separate uh, uh, crime. Um, The the one couple distinctions here, of course, are that, if you have a carry-concealed license, then you can carry the firearm loaded. Uh, In the city of Astoria, there is a municipal ordinance that prohibits the carrying of a loaded firearm in the city. So uh, what we're um, challenged with, though, with the open carry law, is that we are restricted from asking an individual if the firearm is loaded. We're also restricted from conducting an investigation or telling the individual they have to take the gun out of the holster. We cannot expand our interview beyond the original reason for the stop. So uh, that presents uh, challenges for us as a law enforcement agency in terms of actually determining if somebody is actually carrying a loaded loaded gun. Uh, The other scenario that we often hear is if somebody has the gun out of the holster. And again, it's not illegal to have the gun out of the holster, however, in a protest situation there may be scenarios uh, compounded with um, language that an individual uses that can get Mm -hmm. us to that place where we potentially can have the crime of menacing so that is a possibility but what we're hearing for the most part is that uh, the individuals that open carry are not taking the guns out of the holster and if we hear differently um, we definitely would like to hear that, and we will investigate that thoroughly. But that's the challenge we're having with the open carry. Um, Eric, can you else to add to that?
4: No, I, uh, some of the issues that we're dealing with uh, just have to do with uh, search and seizure law and uh, case law. <laughs> I was saying uh, some of the issues that we're having with regard to loaded firearms have to do with search and seizure law and case law related to that.
2: Okay, any questions before I move to the next topic?
1: I I did see some questions in the community just about, in, in addition to the questions which you've answered, why can't you check to see if their gun's loaded? People have said, you know, why can't you demand to see a permit? And can you just, you touched on it, but can you reiterate what type of permit is required to carry a gun and a loaded gun, and when do you have the right to ask for proof of that permit, if
2: ever? Right, so the law that governs the prohibition against carrying a loaded firearm in the city is actually a city ordinance. So again, um, there's uh, very few scenarios where an officer can actually determine where where an individual is carrying a firearm. If an officer is walking down the street, an individual is walking down the street, they're not doing anything illegal necessarily, the officer can do what is called, in the legal terms, called a mere encounter, where basically an officer can come up to an individual and just have a conversation. The individual is free to leave, and the officer can simply engage in just casual conversation and ask the question if they're carrying a loaded firearm if he observes the person with a, with a weapon. If that individual is in a protest situation it changes the uh, dynamics of the whole contact because then Um, It would be an argument to be made by the individual being contacted that we're in a protest environment and clearly the officer is concerned about the safety of having a weapon in that situation or a firearm and it would probably deem that that mere encounter is not a mere encounter anymore. So again, um, it used to be uh, in the city ordinance up until 2013 that the language in that ordinance actually gave the officer the authority to uh, ask the individual if the firearm was loaded, and also the individual had to present the weapon so the officer could inspect it. But that was challenged back in 2013 through some Second Amendment uh, pro-constitutional challenges, and that language was removed. So again, it uh, severely limits our ability to investigate that uh, thoroughly. Anything else? that answer your question, Mayor? Yes, thank
1: you. And then I'll, I'll just make a comment that after uh, the chief's presentation, when the council's finished asking questions, I am going to open it up to members of the public. I think we have one member of the audience that is physically in the room that would like to ask a question. And also for the public, we'll uh, just ask you to use the raise hand function on Zoom if you would like to a- ask a question. And, but we'll, we'll do that with the public once the chief's presentation is over.
2: Okay. Thank you, Mayor. So the uh, next topic I'll move into is a question that we've received from a few people that uh, regards, you know, what what is the ability of the city to establish an ordinance that can physically separate the protesters from the counter-protesters? So again, we've done some research on that, uh, contacting the district attorney's office, our city attorney, and who also may choose to weigh in at some point. Obviously, there's questions about the constitutionality of, of doing such an event some of the challenges that we've found with enacting an ordinance of this nature is that um, well first off i'll say that um, the constitution does allow the city to regulate the time place and manner for public safety reasons so we can direct groups to Um, protest in certain areas, but that's if we know they're going to be protesting in advance. The city of Astoria does not have a permitting process for the protests right now, so we would have to know in advance we'd have to have some form of a permitting process where we could then tell them this is where you're going to protest, this is the time you can do it, and this is the manner you do it. But again, that has to be for legitimate public safety reasons. It can't be arbitrary. So that's that's one challenge, and um, the Uh, What we've seen in in two other cities, I'm not aware of um, too many cities that are even doing this right now. Portland tried this a couple years ago. They were challenged and ultimately the ordinance was never implemented. Uh, They had some issues with it. Uh, There's another city in New York, uh, Glen Falls, They actually instituted an ordinance that required uh, the protesters and counter-protesters to be 30 feet apart from each other. Their first experience was a significantly large protest and nobody paid attention to it and it was completely ignored. Um, That would be a challenge for us as well. Uh, If we did establish an ordinance, it would be treated as an infraction-level offense. Again, that means the only thing we can do is issue a citation. And if we had a significant group of individuals that weren't uh, abiding by that ordinance, if we had one in place, it would be very challenging for us to enforce it. And again, for all the reasons I initially stated on enforcing some other relatively low-level type violations. So, um, Mr. Henningsgaard, I don't know if you have anything to add to that, but thats uh, I think I've recapped what we've talked about earlier.
5: No, I really don't fairly well, Chief. It's almost impossible to uh, regulate these things without getting into uh, a discussion of the content of the of the protest or counter-protest, and that's prohibited by the Oregon Constitution. So, um, whereas we can tell them where they can have their protests or how long they can continue them, we can't say if you're going to say this, you can sit here and if you're say that, you have to sit there. So, um, it is a difficult area to legislate.
2: Thank you.
6: I, I have a question if I may.
1: Go ahead, counselor.
6: Um, and I'm not sure if this is a question or just a struggle with, uh, with with understanding I, I understand at the at the at the foot uh, the basis of all this is protecting everyone's freedom of speech so let's say that I'm in favor of no and Councillor Herman is in favor of yes and I'm on my corner saying no 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 and she's on her corner saying yes 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 clearly we're both engaging in freedom of speech if I leave my corner and go to hers and I loom over her, and I scream at her, and yell at her, and I'm threatening her, and doing my best to intimidate her and shut her up. Am I still engaging in freedom of speech, or am I doing something else? That's that's kind of what I struggle with.
5: Well, there is an Oregon Supreme Court case that say that there is not a fighting words exception to the Oregon constitutional free speech amendments, and that in uh, that case involved something close to what you're talking about. Uh, One speaker doing cuss words and calling people names and getting right in their face, Mm -hmm. telling them where they're gonna go and that sort of thing. The Oregon Supreme Court said, that's all protected speech. Um, There is a point obviously when uh, physical confrontations can become uh, menacing or perhaps harassment or even assault. If if you're spitting on somebody or, or, but as the chief said, there's that line that has to be drawn. That if, it, if it becomes criminal, they can arrest him. But if it's just speaking, even if it's objectionable, the way they're speaking, uh, it can't be uh, sanctioned.
2: move on yeah okay all right so uh, the next topic I know is on uh, a lot of people's minds and that's the subject of chokeholds uh, clearly that's a topic of national conversation and um, I'll just touch on that a little bit right now um, there's a lot of different terms for the term uh, chokehold the um, one that term right now that we have in our policy manual is called the carotid control hold Um Now, with that being said, our policy manual is provided by a policy manual service that provides law enforcement manuals for literally thousands of agencies, you know, public safety agencies, police, fire, and other throughout the United States. And this language is provided for agencies that choose to use it. The language uh, describes how it's used and the situations where it may be used. Um, I will tell you that for all intents and purposes we do not have a carotid control (coughs) hold policy because uh, we do not train in that policy and the language in that policy says uh, this uh, policy cannot be used by officers who have not been trained. I have spoken to several of the officers who have recently graduated from our police academy and they tell me that uh, not only has it not been trained, they aren't even really that familiar with the term because it hasn't even been brought up. So it's not something that's currently trained. No officers in the Astoria Police Department have been trained in the use of a carotid control hold, so it is not an approved uh, technique for officers to use. So with that being said, we've had recent conversations always looking to update our policies and we will in all likelihood be removing the language from our policy manual in its entirety since it's it's basically ineffective uh, based on the fact that um, it says we can't use it if no officers have been trained and no officers have been trained in that technique. So uh, next category I just want to touch on is a little bit about use of force. I did touch on this uh, last meeting, or at least in, in some of the, the paperwork that I provided, but I just want everybody to understand this is such an important topic and have everyone understand that this this is an area that we as a police department take very seriously as well. We have very comprehensive policy. Uh, Uh, policies on the use of force, use of deadly force, use of control devices and other related areas that uh, encompass over 80 pages in our policy manual alone. So it's Uh, everything from the scenarios where you can use force, how to report force, and then of course there's even the pieces in there that I've related to before about a duty to intercede, which obviously is a hot topic as well. So that's uh, made abundantly clear in our policy that uh, there is a requirement for officers, aside from the the moral uh, side of it, uh, there's a legal requirement in our manual to report conduct that's inappropriate by other officers. Uh, Every use of force in the city of Astoria is required to be reported. Not only is it documented in the police report, it's also memorialized on the officer's body cam, and then we also have a separate use of force uh, policy review procedure. Our um, threshold for reporting use of force is very low. So of the reported uses of force that we had, for example, in 2019, those include such things even as taking a taser and pointing at somebody, even if they (laughs) never have to pull the trigger. A simple warning preceded and a less lethal control device is required in the policy, and if the officer doesn't need to use it, then the officer doesn't need to use it, but we still... (laughs) Uh, require the officer to report that as a use of force, and that is reviewed um, by all of command staff. So the report's done, it's reviewed by the officer supervisor, and then it comes to command staff, we review each one of them, and then we determine whether it's within policy, and then sometimes we'll make determinations that it's with or not within policy, and then sometimes there may even be um, some additional training may be beneficial to the officer, or at least consider other options as well, so that's part of the ongoing training process. Um, We also, uh, the deputy chief compiles all the use of force cases from each year, provides me a list of all the use of forces that were used, and uh, makes a determination which ones were within policy. Um, As an example, in 2019, we had uh, 31 reported uses of force. Uh, That may sound like a lot to some people, may not sound like a lot to some people, but when you look at the calls for service we had, which were uh, almost 18,000 calls for service, that's less than two incidents for every thousand calls for service that an officer handled. So it's uh, pretty pretty low numbers, and again, that's even based on the low threshold. Um, so anything else to add to that? Here. Uh, no. I think, uh, no. yeah, maybe. Okay
4: we uh, so the uh, year-end report for use of force uh, we do go over our uh, use of forces for the year and look to see if there's any kind of trends or training needs uh, that um, that uh, come out of those reviews uh, and so that we can can uh, keep our our staff up to date and see if we have have issues or, or we don't have issues
2: thank you Any questions before I press on? Okay, so uh, the next uh, quick little category is in the current conversation we're having on racial profiling and um, implicit bias. uh, The the state of Oregon passed legislation uh, two or three years ago that enacted a program called STOP. And that's an acronym for Statistical Transparency of Policing. So basically it requires agencies to provide data on every traffic stop and every pedestrian stop, every proactive type stop. So it's pretty much short of anything other than uh, somebody calling for service or uh, asking us to respond to something. So it's when an officer makes a conscious decision to stop an individual or a vehicle. So the data is collected, such as the individual's race, age, sex, uh, some other statistical data, uh, whether a vehicle was searched, if there was an arrest made, location time and date and those types of data so that's all collected and provided Uh, our agency side is based on agency side is when it's implemented Uh, for our agency we are starting that data collection July 1st all of our software has been updated by our software vendor we've actually been participating in the beta program for the last year and I've already started collecting that data Um, so we we are already doing that so we'll be ready to hit the ground running come July 1st The legislature actually tasked the Oregon State Police with managing the program and they're doing it through the, uh, in conjunction with the State Academy, the Department of Public Safety Standards and Training and the Criminal Justice Commission. So that's uh, something I wanted people to be aware of that is something that departments are tracking and have been tracking long before recent incidents. So the next category uh, want to touch on is the uh, national conversation on defund the police uh, I, I'll be honest with you when I first saw this I, I, I think I was uh, somewhat concerned about the, uh, the what I thought was the conversation but after I dug a little deeper into it uh, it actually there's many tenets of this uh, that actually do make sense. Uh, there's actually only 16 percent of the population in a recent poll by the New York Times that um, feel that the actually defund the the police means actually cutting resources from police departments and actually getting rid of police officers Um, I I think what people are looking for which actually makes sense is to look at all the needs and the types of calls that police officers um, have had to respond to over the years which have been added to their plate such as calls involving homelessness, mental illness, substance abuse uh, those types of calls can probably be better handled by many of our social service agencies because uh, police officers you know they they don't have the same level of training that a mental health professional might have or uh, somebody from a social service agency so part of the conversation does involve Uh, At least some people are suggesting that the money should be taken from police department's budgets and put into some of the social service agencies. Um, That may work for some bigger agencies, but I can tell you that that would be uh, difficult (coughs) for some of the smaller agencies. We in Astoria are doing a good job with the amount of officers we have, but I will say that in the last 10 years alone, our calls for service have doubled, and we've only added one police officer (coughs) position in that time. And I'll also say that the job of a police officer has been become extremely much more complex in terms of the types of requirements that are placed on the, the officers. Uh, the the reporting requirements, the legislative uh, unfunded mandates, and um, one example is just the body cameras, as important as they are and as much as we have embraced them and and are happy to have those, it really has uh, doubled the time it takes for a police officer to do their uh, police report now because they have to view the the camera footage as they're preparing their report. So um, those are just some examples of the challenges that we face. Uh, we feel that we are doing a good job as a police department providing service to our community. We're uh, being uh, good as far as reacting to calls, but we could do more with more resources. So, um, uh, I would say that you know we would not welcome uh, any defunding of the Astoria Police Department, but at the same time, we welcome resources being used to some of our social service partners who we work very well with, such as uh, Columbia Behavioral Health. Uh, the, <clears throat> Class of Community Action and those types of entities uh, are very good partners, and we and we work well. Uh, I think there are examples, some we've already been talking about through our Homeless uh, Solutions Task Force, and one of them is the Homeless Liaison Officer, which is a great example of a private-public partnership where a civilian individual responds to the homeless-related calls, and the only time we respond are the, the ones where individuals are being violent, uh, et cetera. So, um, You know, uh, I guess the last thing I'll say about the defund conversation is the other piece of it, we get calls is, you know, are we still involved in the school resource officer program? Uh, The city of Astoria ended that program in 2013. Um, Although I will say that this is something that we have had conversations with the school district about possibly re-engaging in this program. Um, I feel that this is a very good program in terms of building trust in the school, it, it, it goes a long way when we talk about police legitimacy, police legitimacy and procedural justice, uh, building trust, and not to mention that you know we have a fair amount of calls in the schools, and the officers in the schools handle those calls. Uh, and then the last, most important thing is um, identifying threats in the schools before they become bigger problems. Um, So anyway, uh, I know that's not the conversation we're having tonight, but I just wanted to offer my uh, comment on that letter But uh, everybody know right now. We do not have a school resource officer in the schools. So um, that's my um, Bit on the defunding conversation. Anything else I'm missing there Any questions mayor council before I press on?
1: No, keep on going. Thanks chief.
7: I actually had a quick question um about the stop program chief spaulding i think you mentioned you touched on this but can you clarify where that data once it's compiled is sent and what's done with it
2: i'm sorry did you say the stop data counselor
7: yeah so the the data that's compiled from the stop program um is that i think you sent it the data was sent to the To the state? Right, so the
2: the the legislature tasked the uh, Oregon State Patrol with managing the program, but they're managing it in conjunction with the Criminal Justice Commission and the Department of Public Safety Standards and Training. So three different entities have been involved in this project and the data, it doesn't, techni- well, I shouldn't say that, it, it has started for some bigger cities. So it started last July 1st for some bigger cities. Uh, agencies uh, story size start this July 2020. So the program has already been implemented for some agencies. For us, it starts um, in a couple weeks, even though we've been um, participating, collecting the data over the last year as part of a, a beta test. Um, the. The data, in terms of availability, I, I'm not 100% sure where that data is going to be available to. I, I suspect, just based on the fact that the the T and the stop uh, is transparency, so I suspect it will be available to anybody that wants the data. But I'll, I'll confirm that unless you already know who's who has access to that data. But I don't, I don't know yeah. That okay.
7: Okay. Thank you.
2: Was that that your question? Yes. Uh, Next topic is surplus military equipment. This one's easy. The answer is no. (laughs) Uh, We don't have any surplus military equipment. Uh, Another area I want to touch on and again this speaks a little bit to the you know transparency and and public trust and police legitimacy is the area of appearance. So two things. Uh, I've had some questions on the load-bearing vest, and so that's uh, it's, it's called an exterior load-bearing vest. Police officers traditionally have worn their bulletproof vest mm-hmm. under their uniform shirt. Um, many, many years ago, uh, at least 20 years ago, there was starting uh, starting to see studies that uh, showed some of the effects of officers carrying all the equipment on their gun belt, and it was somewhere up in the area of 25 pounds that was the weight that they're carrying on their hips every day, and we're starting to see officers that were having back and hip problems. Uh, couple different uh, vest vendors and other companies came out with uh, the new new design load-bearing vest. So basically the actual vest panels are carried in a ballistic vest that goes over a shirt, and then the equipment is then hung from the shirt by velcro for the most part. So most of that weight now is carried on the officer's shoulders, uh, taking the weight off their hips so there's a medical reason that um, the load-bearing vests were introduced many years ago and now most law enforcement agencies have adopted that as an option for officers to wear Um, some individuals believe that they may look more military in appearance Um, that may be However, uh, there, there is a medical benefit to that. I've always believed that it's not as much how the officer appears when they're contacting individuals, it's more about how they carry themselves as what defines the officer and how people ultimately judge the individual. So, um, but I did wanna share that piece too, that the uh, logic behind the additional load bearing vest. And then the other part of the appearance conversation is our police cars. We have six marked patrol vehicles Um, When I came here, all six of them, none of them had light bars on them. All of them had semi-subdued police lettering on the side of the vehicles. Uh, it's always been my belief that um, we are not trying to hide from anybody that was never the intent but there was some some logic behind that as far as uh, making it easier to catch you know drunk drivers and those types of things but um, I'm more interested in visibility I want people to know that we're out there um, having the light bar on top of the vehicle is a safety feature it it, it improves the visibility especially when we get involved in pursuits Uh, we've now also improved the uh, brightness of the lettering on the side of the vehicle and actually made it uh, a little bit bigger as well. So um, two years ago when we replaced a vehicle, we uh, went to the light bar design with the bigger lettering, and then uh, we've got our two newer vehicles are also have light bars and um, the the brighter side lettering on the vehicle. So now we have half of our fleet are. The, the newer style, and then as we replace cars we will review and, and, and in all likelihood continue down that model. So, <coughs> Any questions, parents? Hmm. All right, um, training, I'm just going to touch on that again, I I've, uh, covered all the different types of training that a police officer receives in the police academy. Um, To include the types of classes that are in the academy and then also post academy, some of the ongoing uh, training and then also some of the perishable skills training. I do just want to remind everybody because the question came up in terms of do police officers have enough training? Uh, I suppose police officers will never have enough training, but there's also um, a point where they also have to be out on the street protecting the public versus spending all their time in training as well. But I think. Overall, on balance, we do a pretty good job of making sure that our officers have the appropriate level of training. I think our police academy does an exceptional job job of training at DPSST. Um, they are the only game in the state. You can't go to other areas uh, and get training and become a police officer in Oregon. Uh, California, for example, you can go to the community college and receive academy <coughs> training. There's multiple academies throughout the state. They are all certified, but at the same time, Um, I don't think you get the consistency of training that you get from the DPSST Academy here in Salem. Uh, That Academy is 16 weeks and then once the academy, once the recruit graduates from the academy, they're put into a field training program. And that's anywhere from three to four months where they're um, spending time with anywhere from three to four other officers. So in that, that time alone, they receive about 1,280 hours of training just before they're even put out by themselves. And then once they're placed on their own, they're still basically in training. They're on probation. They're still monitored by other police officers. And then uh, we have our daily training bulletins, we have our regular ongoing training we do in-house and we have training we do outside the organization too. So the training is ongoing um, with a focus on contemporary topics such as de-escalation, racial profiling, implicit bias and some of the contemporary topics. I suspect we will be seeing a lot more of that. Um, We're all looking forward to once we get through the (coughs) COVID-19 crisis we can actually uh, participate more training but in the meantime we're going to be looking at all uh, types of uh, in-house training that we can do um, through other means to get through this. Um, so anything else, any questions on training?
3: Yes. Um, uh, this is counselor Brownson just to, uh, when you, when you hire uh, a police officer, what's the sort of minimum education requirements coming into it and, um, and the type of education and is there uh, a preference? Is there a level that you like to see beyond a minimum?
2: Yes, Counselor, um, first off, a requirement to have a high school diploma, and then it's, it's required to have a two-year college degree. However, there are exceptions for experience. Um, it's not necessarily required that they have a degree in criminal justice or um, police science. Uh, it can be a related field, but, uh, but that is the, the basically the minimum requirement that accurate. Yeah,
4: that's
2: what it has been. Okay. Yeah. Okay, thank you. I do have a question
8: also, and that is for officers, and I'm referring to some reports nationwide of officers who may have a history of using excessive force, yet they continue to be employed. Um, So what is the policy in Astoria?
2: Thank you, Counselor. Uh, Two things. Uh, I say number one is that we do a very thorough background investigation on every applicant, whether they are a lateral transfer or whether they're an entry-level transfer. So it doesn't matter if you're working in another law enforcement agency, we will conduct a thorough background investigation. Uh, The actual application packet that the applicant fills out is 26 pages long um, to include references, um, previous employers, neighbors, Uh, Just about everybody you can imagine, family members, um, talks about criminal history, financial history. It goes very, very deep into their background. We uh, do a very thorough background investigation, and then uh, after that, they uh, have an interview with a psychiatrist or psychologist. So that's that's the in-house screening part. The other part I will tell you that um, I'm proud of that we do here in Oregon is the certification and decertification process. So once an officer graduates the academy, they are certified as a police officer. Uh, If an officer is accused of misconduct, it is reviewed by the state. There are certain mandatory fields that an officer is automatically decertified and then there's other areas that an officer will be goes to a 28 person uh, commission to make a decision that that officer can be decertified so if there's uh, misconduct that rises to the level of decertification they cannot be a police officer anywhere in this state so um, that that i think is um, a, a, an excellent vehicle to um, prevent uh, bad officers from coming to work here in Astoria or any other city and county in the state for that matter. Not every state has that level of certification, decertification program. I think I reported in my previous report that um, in a five-year period there was over 200 some police officers um, actually decertified over that five-year period. It sounds like a lot, Um, And it is a lot, especially when that number should be zero, but out of the thousands of officers that have served throughout that time period, it's a relatively small percentage, still a big number. So hopefully that answers your question, counselor.
8: It does, thank
2: you.
7: Chief Spaulding, can you um, give a couple of examples of uh, maybe what would result in decertification?
2: Uh, I would say uh, oftentimes it's uh, committing a crime for example, like if an officer commits a theft, that would be uh, something that could uh, be uh, they could be decertified for. So pretty much committing most crimes will get an officer decertified. I don't know off the top of my head the list of all the uh, mandatory uh, type things. However, um, examples of excessive force uh, could get an officer decertified. Uh, uh, dishonesty, uh, lying type offenses will get an officer decertified. Um, so it's a pretty extensive list, but it's, it would be a lot of the things that I think most of us would believe that an officer should never be hired or should even be a police officer if they've committed a particular offense that would probably be on that list. Thank you. And I'd be happy to uh, get a copy of that list for you if you'd like.
7: That's okay.
2: Thank you. Uh, police training. So uh, let's see here. I want to talk just briefly. Um, the question I've received a fair amount of interest in is um, social media posts. And you know, when does it rise to the level of a crime? And again, this is where individuals' right to free speech and the First Amendment right uh, to express themselves. Uh, people can do that pretty freely on social media with, with um, not a lot of uh, restriction. And um, most often the types of things that we're asked about is, you know, somebody making a threat. and. In order for to have the crime of menacing, generally speaking, you have to have the element of immediacy. You have to be able to carry out the threat immediately. Uh, And On social media, that's hard to do in many cases. Uh, I will say that um, the threats that come to our attention on social media, if it's something that's occurring in our city, we will investigate it. We will look into it, especially when we're talking about something involving the schools, because that's oftentimes where those come to our attention. Um, If it's something that somebody's making a threat about, you know, if it's just kind of uh I don't know if I'll even say half in jest, but we've seen some that you know you, you could imply from the message that somebody is talking about killing somebody. Obviously, we take those very seriously, but it's uh, again, it would be very difficult to get any form of a prosecution or take any criminal action against somebody just for making a, a statement of their own opinion on social media. So I just wanted to address that topic since we do get a fair amount of questions in terms of how, how those are handled. Anything else to add to that? So, um, I think that actually brings me to a close, I, I do want to say in closing that uh, we very much appreciate the council and the mayor's support of the police department. also really appreciate our community support. You know, if some of the posts we put out there and some other comments that we're receiving from the community uh, have been overwhelmingly positive. I know there's been some individuals who feel that maybe we should be handling some of these protesters a little bit differently, but there's uh, a rationale behind uh, the way we're handling these. We continue to make adjustments, we take feedback from our community, we take feedback from our councilor, our mayor, and our city manager, and we're always looking for ways to improve. We're not perfect, but we try, and we're always learning, and um, I'd like to say that I think we do a pretty good job in our community, and, and I, I say that because that's what I hear from our community uh, with the overwhelmingly positive support and we, we really enjoy that and uh, it makes our job easier to uh, police in this community and uh, we just appreciate that so with that that concludes my uh, points I wanted to share with you today and so I'm more than happy to entertain any questions.
1: And Chief, uh, I know there have been some questions and in other cities have been questions about policy on tear gas and rubber bullets, those types of weapons. Could you address that?
2: Yeah, thank you, Mayor. I'm glad you mentioned that because I actually had that on my list and I must have glossed over it, so let me grab my notes here. Um, Well, what what I will say about uh, policy on tear gas, uh, tear gas canisters, uh, pepper ball, those types of uh, uh, tools, I'll call them, we do not have any of those tools here in the city of Astoria now I will tell you that um, we do have those if we were to call a mutual aid type event the county does possess many of those types of tools um, many of those tools are also uh, devices that are used in barricaded subject in, uh, situations. so it's not just for riot type situations. so just because they have it doesn't mean they're going to be using them for riots um, in a in the type of situation where we would actually have a need for something like that is going to be a pretty serious situation Where we are calling mutual aid if we called all the resources we had in our county alone We may or may not be able to handle it if it was a big enough event um, We had an event uh, a couple uh, maybe a week or so ago where we had upwards of 800 people and You know fortunately they were most mostly peaceful protesters, but had that gone bad uh, we would have had a situation where we would have had to call for assistance from Uh, Not only in our county, but in all likelihood, we might have had to call for assistance outside the county. Uh, Many of you uh, may have been around for the the seaside riots back in 99, and that was a situation where they had uh, Washington County deputies come out to assist, and tear gas, I understand, may have been deployed at that time. So... Um, very rare in a situation that we would ever need to use that however it is tools that we have at our disposal and i could potentially see a need if we had an event that was so bad that um, we were actually looking to protect life and property in our community
3: um chief spallings council brownson i just want to go back to um the protester and counter-protester situation because that seems to be one of the things that really has a lot of people upset is the confrontational aspect and and you talked about it and and I have an email here somebody sent me that says uh, through Oregon revised statutes crime and punishments and I I can forward you the link and whatnot but um, it has for a person commits the crime of harassment if the person intentionally A, harass or annoys another person by either A, uh, subjecting such a person to offensive physical contact, which we sort of address, and that seems pretty obvious. And then B, publicly insulting such other person by abusive words or gestures in a manner intended or likely to provoke a violent response. And maybe you were talking about, that aspect of it and trying to, um, nuance how you determine at what point, uh, somebody is actually looking to provoke a violent response. And it seems to me that if somebody's got a bullhorn in somebody's face and they've got a sidearm that that's not only, but it's more than intimidating, but it's looking to create a reaction. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit again and, um, for me and
2: for this person? Yeah, so I'll, I'll uh, give it a stab here and then I'll turn it over to the deputy chief and maybe even uh, Mr. Henningsgaard would want to uh, weigh in as well. One of the things that um, we look at is in, in to ensure that the district attorney's office is would support Prosecution on some of these offenses, and and again, as I mentioned earlier, we're we're, we're seeing a whole new dynamic here in these um, protest movements. With we have the protesters and counter protesters, so it's something that we haven't had a lot of experience here at Astoria. Um, so we're learning from other agencies and what have you, and it, it kind of gets back a little bit to. Um, you know, ensuring that we're not going to engage on certain types of activity. Some of them clearly we simply don't know about unless somebody reports that to us. So it may be something that's reported after the fact. But if we witness it or it's brought to our attention right away, then we will address it. oftentimes it may just be that we're going to address it through uh, making a report, like I mentioned. will go to the district attorney's office, and the district attorney's office makes that decision. But um, some of these types of offenses, it takes a combination of both the words and the actions to rise to what may be the level of an actual criminal offense. And again, there are certain offenses that we do know that are occurring out there, but we don't have necessarily, we don't always have the resources to address every one of these types of events. So, Eric, you want to weigh in on that? Uh,
4: Counselor Brownson. Uh, the harassment statute um, that actual the wording uh, words your conduct likely to provoke a violent response Mr. Henningsgard can probably pop in here but that has been deemed um, through case law uh, as uh, not constitutional so that that aspect of the harassment statute uh, we are not able to enforce and I believe that was a ruling back in 1984 I'd have to go back to look for the the case law on that but so it's still on the books when you read it but uh, we're limited in what we can do based on case law.
3: Okay well thank you for um, clearing that up. Um, I I always find it interesting something like that would stay on the books if it's not working because people go to it right and um, so it, it is and it is frustrating because it's it's like when we talk about for instance uh the homeless downtown and we're asking for them to be have better behavior and and that we are you know we're we're talking about ordinances to if people aren't behaving well that they can be you know uh moved out of the zone mm-hmm. and you know then we get in a situation like this where somebody is evident, obviously not uh, behaving well and we can't do anything about it. I think it's kind of an interesting conundrum. But I, th- those are my comments.
2: Yeah.
1: So um, if there's any other immediate counselor comments, you can go ahead, otherwise I'm gonna open it to the public. <laughs> sorry, in, I I yeah, yeah, so um, we have one, d- d- did you, st- Still want to make a, you think you're good? Okay, so we will ask uh, if anyone uses the raise hand function um, and we call on you, please uh, state your name and your address for the record since this is recorded. Then you'll have um, three minutes. So Jen, do we have any raised hands? Nothing? We'll just wait one more minute and see if anybody asks to make a comment.
9: hear me. Okay, so on the bottom of your screen, um
8: under I
4: oh
8: under More. I've never done that. <laughs> under
9: reactions, you can do a hand wave or you can do a thumbs up. Um I can unmute you for one of those. Um and I know that on the on phones, I believe it's up on the top of top your right. screen that you can do the hand raise. And I still don't see any.
3: So, if if you look at participants, uh, you click that, and then you'll see a, a raise hand.
9: Yeah.
1: Okay. Looks like we don't have any public comments. So, in that case, I mean, I do, I, Chief. I just want to thank you for your extremely thorough briefing. There was lots of questions and comments from the public over the last three weeks, and um, and especially over the last two weeks since our large protest, so I really appreciate the transparency. Um, maybe, um, I don't know if there's a way we can make the, uh, his portion of the recording available uh, on our website and social media, just so that members of the public who weren't able to tune in tonight could, um, could see, because it was a really good presentation that covered and answered, I think, a lot of the questions that people have had, so. And, that's, and that is definitely doable, Mayor. Okay, great. All right, if there's no more questions from council, then uh, thank you chief and deputy chief very much. And uh, next is reports of counselors. Councilor Herman.
8: Thank you, mayor. I do wanna thank chief Spalding and deputy chief Halverson also for their thoroughness and their transparency and their accessibility with citizens of Astoria, and I just want to say that I'm very grateful to live in Astoria for many reasons, not the least of which is that Astoria is by and large a progressive, inclusive community, but I'm not naive naive enough to think that even Astoria is exempt from the scourge of racism and other forms of bigotry. So I'm very grateful for all the peaceful protesters who participated in the recent demonstrations for Black Lives Matter in Astoria, as well as Warrington Seaside and across the river over the past 10 or so days. And I especially want to commend the high school students and sometimes even younger students who organized the protests and displayed courage and maturity in the face of the armed white supremacists who yelled at and taunted them through a bullhorn Many adults could and should learn from these young people. They give me hope for the future. That's all I have.
1: Thank you. Councilor Brownson.
3: Thank you, Mayor Jones. Um, And thank you, Councilor Herman. I think that that's well said. And um, I will second that certainly. I don't have much more to report. uh, we've had a lot in this meeting. I've, I haven't been too busy uh, with uh, too many city ex- extracurricular activities. We wrapped up some uh, league of Oregon city committees and uh, waiting for some final reports on those. And, um, and just also just want to make on a, on a positive note, a, a shout out to our, our library and their service. Uh, my wife, Liz was looking for a book. Uh, she called the library. It was in Seaside. Uh, it ended up in the Astoria library the next day and she was reading it the next day. So the system works and I really appreciate uh, Director uh, Pearson's uh, efforts in that. And that's all for now. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Councillor West.
7: Uh, well, I'd also like to thank Joan for your comments um, and... Uh, for Chief Spaulding and Deputy Halverson for the uh, informative presentation. Um, I'm just continuing to uh, stay on top of um, COVID-19 developments. Still attended a meeting with um, both Jeff Merkley and uh, Ron Wyden around the impact on nonprofits around Oregon. Uh, There's also a town hall with Um, Suzanne Bonamici coming up and then of course just continuing to attend the National League of Cities and Oregon League of Cities meetings Um, and I have been able to along with Mayor Jones uh, attend some of the protests that have been happening to show my um, solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, It's been both inspiring and and heartbreaking at the same time. And uh, I think so many of us um, see the need for social justice, uh, equality, and, and something that I didn't think that would come out of this movement, but Chief Spalding touched on it and I completely agree, and that's an investment in social services and the commitment to taking care of While taking care of of one another. And so I commend uh, again, Chief Spaulding, Deputy Halverson, your entire department on your professionalism. Um, I've, of course, I think I probably asked way too many questions uh, of you, Chief Spaulding, (laughs) over the last couple of weeks, and they've always been answered with um, grace and. Integrity and, and consideration. So I I really appreciate that uh, and the, the transparency and keeping that line of communication open, which apparently is rare, um, but it's it's definitely the way that it should be. And so I'm I've I don't think I've ever been more grateful um, to live in Astoria than than right now. And so uh, that goes out to you and your department. Um, and uh, the city and the community at large. So thank you.
1: Thank you, Uh, Councilor Rocca.
6: See, I think maybe I just blended with...
1: We can hear you now.
6: Yeah, there we are, okay. Um, what I was saying was I can I uh, agree entirely with my colleagues about, about uh, um, their feelings about racial justice and uh, our need to do a lot better with that. And was mentioning that one uh, really interesting webinar I attended in the last uh, week was uh, actually done by the National League of Cities. It was organized by black leaders to have conversation with... Uh, with those city leaders from all over the country, and that was uh, was quite interesting. Um, I know Councillor Brownson will agree with me that Saturday, sadly, we had to say goodbye to Three Cups of Coffee in the in Uniontown. Uh, Carly Lackner, who's uh, run that for the past eleven years, is a very warm and open-hearted person, and that became a gathering spot for all manner of things, from uh, from chess tournaments to political gatherings to letting councillors come and have their meet the public. Uh, events there. Uh, Saturday was really emotional day for Carly, and the reason she's closing it down is because um, she's decided it's time for her to uh, uh, have more regular hours and to spend a little more time with her 10-year-old daughter, Peggy May, who, uh, who has sort of been in the, who kind of grew up at Three Cups. So uh, we're gonna miss Three Cups, and I wish Carly the best.
1: Thanks. Thank you. Uh, so, um I guess quick economic update on how the community seems to be doing. I talked to several of the hotel managers and spent some time in town on Saturday and Sunday. And uh, what I'm hearing is uh, for the hotels, they're able to get uh, pretty darn close to their 60% capacity that they're allowed to do between now and the 26th, I think, of uh, June when they can go to 100%. Um, Some of them are holding back a little bit on staff uh, rehiring So that's kind of a self-imposed limitation because they're a little anxious to hire all the staff back if uh, there's a possibility that we might not go to 100% or have some kind of breakout in town. Additionally, I think some employees have decided to move on to other industries or uh, or maybe aren't comfortable coming back to work yet. But there certainly were a lot of people in town over the weekend. Uh, Sunday market continues to grow a little bit every weekend. I, I go just about every Sunday to check it out buy some fresh oysters, and, um, and I'm always impressed that everybody's following the rules, wearing masks, and maintaining their physical distancing. Had a chance to talk to a few folks in the commercial fishing industry and related industries, and that, of course, is um, having a pretty significant downturn in most aspects, mostly driven by, ever since this started three months ago, the, um, the drop in the export market and uh, also the restaurant uh, market. And so for some seafood processors that supply groceries primarily, they're doing okay, but the others are still having a significant drop in demand, which means they go out and fish and can't get much money for their fish. And of course, that has a ripple effect on the economy. As fishermen come back, they're not making as much money, and so they're not able to spend money in the community and make investments in their boats and in, uh, in other areas, so um, that continues to be, to be an issue very unfortunate for our traditional industry. One other topic I wanted to talk about is uh, something that, came, that uh, there's an article in today's paper that I think most of you've probably seen regarding river cruises and the potential for a first uh, river cruise ship to make an appearance in Astoria uh, Saturday evening on the 20th this, this weekend. So three months ago, uh, when uh, COVID-19 was just becoming serious and there were uh, deep-sea cruises scheduled to arrive in Astoria, uh, we met with the county, county public health, county manager, and the port, and together, collectively, as the city, the county, and the port, we made the determination that in the absence of any guidance from the state, we would consider a cruise ship to be a public gathering and that therefore the public gathering restrictions, which at the time were 250 people, subsequently reduced, that those would apply and that was our way of preventing uh, those deep sea cruise ships with thousands of passengers from coming into Astoria at a time when there was great concern. So since then, in the subsequent almost three months since that initial decision we made, The state has come out with guidance for restaurants, uh, for retail, uh, for other types of um, general commercial establishments, uh, for events, uh, updated guidance on public gatherings in a variety of other areas. So as we uh, got requests locally at the county, port, and city, to um, from the cruise, the river cruise ship industries, and I'll make the distinction between the river cruise ships and the deep sea cruise ships, which have thousands of passengers, mm-hmm. the river cruise ships are much smaller, typically no more than 250 people on the ship. Um, so we be, over the past several weeks, we've had a series of ongoing discussions with county manager, county public health, the port. Uh, myself and Mr. Estes, and then uh, most recently in the last few weeks with a representative from the state, representing our region of the reopening uh, team, looking at um, how we go about determining whether or not it's uh, a prudent uh, risk assessment, uh, dis- a risk management decision to allow the river cruise vessels to come into uh, the community. and. Last week, um, public health also brought in our two local hospitals, CMH and Providence Seaside, and, a, a, and really, um, at this point, uh, the primary driver is the public health assessment, and so we've relied quite a bit on our county public health department working with the hospitals to determine their level of comfort, and that is uh, required really looking at well what is the business model for these river cruises and what type of pe- people are on them where are they coming from and most importantly what protocols have the river cruise lines put into effect and so we got pretty substantial amount of information on that and the precautions they've put in place on the cruise the river cruise boats are actually pretty substantial But right now, the status of the vessel that was reported as possibly coming on the 20th is they called the city to ask whether um, there's a berth available. And the answer is, yes, there's a spot at the pier, but you're not yet approved to come in, and really it's pending, and Mr. Estes will talk a little bit more about that, it's really pending um, uh, final uh, review by public health of the cruise ships arrangements with uh, the medical providers as well as um, any guidance or any uh, other interaction we'll have with, uh, with the state of Oregon. Is there anything you wanna to add to that, Mr. Estes?
0: No, I, and I understand that, uh, that there has been ongoing conversations with the county uh, health department as to their medical protocols and that has been moving forward. And then, uh, you know, as you said, Mayor, um, there is an available berth at the Seventeenth Street Dock uh, for this uh, for this vessel, um, and assuming that there are no subsequent uh, issues raised, you know, by the health department or the or the state, um, you know, then they would be able to be able to berth at
2: that location.
1: And, and also just to provide a little more clarification on the, the business model for these trips, you know, so this would not be a ship that's coming from sea where it's been at floating at sea uh, for weeks at a time. It's These are people that go to Portland, get on the boat in Portland on Saturday morning, make the transit to Astoria, spend the night and a day in Astoria, and then they go back to Portland and back upriver. So really the, the more interesting question, which we don't have any input into, it's just interesting, is that uh, for embarkation of the vessel sure. in Portland, Portland is not yet even in phase one. They're still in the baseline, pre-phase one phase. So it's gonna be interesting to see what their public health department has to say uh, about it. But I know that's been, uh, several of my colleagues asked questions about that today. So if anyone has any, any of the counselors have any questions, please go ahead.
3: Yes, Council Brownson, uh, does the state Travel restrictions have anything to impact on this?
0: Uh, so, so um, I would note that the state has actually not put any travel restrictions on jurisdictions throughout COVID. There's been there have been um, there's been guidance provided by uh, the state that there should not be any travel but if you recall, um, jurisdictions in Clatsop County, some jurisdictions in Central Oregon, some others along the coast prohibited uh, visitors from coming, but it was always legal to stay in hotels in Portland throughout all of COVID and yeah, it still is. So
3: I, I guess they were it was just guidelines not to travel outside the area, stay close to home, not to go more than 50 miles. Was one of the parameters, but again, it was just guidance, not actual restrictions. Is what you're saying?
0: Right. I mean, it was. It was. There was the, the governor had an order stating, you know, stay close, but there was not anything uh, that that said that it was prohibited to stay in hotels. It really was in Astoria, Warrenton, other jurisdictions in Clatsop County. And other locations you know throughout the state chose to be able to put some prohibitions on uh, tourism based trips, but that was not mandated by the
1: state yeah. i would I would say there was a conscious decision by the state to not put any restrictions in place i mean they clearly could have done so, they knew there was interest in that by some and they've put no restrictions on hotels, they've put no restrictions on cruise vessels, they've put no restrictions on bus tours. I mean, you could, you can sign up for a bus tour and go Crater Lake or wherever, that's not prohibited either. Yeah, thank you, but,
3: I
8: think it's pretty
6: interesting.
1: It is.
8: But um, didn't the governor issue a stay-at-home order um, in mid-March or so?
0: You're correct, Counselor, she did uh, issue a stay-at-home order but there she did not prohibit people from staying in hotels it was okay red, that, that's the different um, the differentiation all right. I'm trying to make.
8: and then i did have a question what currently are the maximum number of people who can gather in one place
0: so chief
1: it's it's um it's 50 indoors 100 outdoors and then there's also an event size of 250. Um, and I will note that part of what each cruise line, river cruise line has proposed is that they would be allowing passengers to disembark only in a, over a staggered periods of time as in small groups, so you wouldn't have large groups leaving the ship together.
8: I guess that they'd all be together for, I don't know how long they're on the ship for. And it really, I so guess, that-
1: Right, they're on the vessel together, but they would be on different decks of the vessel, dining at different times in their own uh, state rooms with individual air systems.
0: Yeah, and I I would clarify that, you know, the conversations that have been had uh, with regards to this in that the city of Astoria is not an expert with regards to these types of issues. Um, There have had to be conversations with folks at the state level um, as well as you know with the county health department you know with some of those more specific you know discussions about how operations work
1: and i'll just note that um we had very long conference calls with the cruise lines and county public health so that county public health could ask those detailed questions of how people are managed uh, and what size groups they are on the uh, on the ships themselves.
8: All right, thank you.
7: I think that was uh, Joan asked. I I think what my main question was, and and that was just that uh, the question around. Um, if there, if there are limitations as far as how many people can gather in any one room or space at a time. So w- essentially what you're saying is, is that the cruise ships have a plan to keep these groups of up to 50 separate because I, I assumed that you know anything more than 50 on the, the ship would, in some ways, be a violation um, of what's currently allowed in Phase Two,
0: uh, uh, Mayor. I mean, maybe if I can say, you know, my understanding is that you know, in the communications with the folks at the state, you know, they're looking at you know, restaurant facilities on board and how those those dining facilities comply with with state issued guidelines with regards to dining uh, and uh with regards to lodging but in inside that vessel is that is yeah i think there? i think
1: so yeah
7: thank you
6: i would have to say i'm feeling a, a little bit optimistic about this uh from what i've read the uh, the, uh We'll be able to maintain social distancing aboard the vessel. Um, these are largely older people who, who perhaps, because they are more vulnerable, may be a little more careful um, than in, in general. I've been somewhat dismayed to see uh, people in town and, and not all visitors. Who, because businesses are open, it's sort of a difference in mindset. So more and more, I'm seeing people without masks and uh, paying less attention to distancing, uh, which which dismays me. I'm not sure that that the river cruise um, will be a worsening of that. I, I I suspect they. I'm hopeful. I guess that they'll be able to to keep people separated to have people who pay attention to the mask um uh, requests and that uh uh, they won't present a greater threat at least than than the threat we're already under from from the increase in people in town
1: okay well thanks everybody and that's all i have for my report um are there any changes to the agenda no changes the Items on the consent calendar are considered routine and will be adopted by one motion unless a member of the council requests to have an item considered separately. Members of the community may also have an item removed by contacting the city manager by 5 p.m. the day of the meeting. Has the public requested any items removed? No requests. Uh, Councilors, any items to be removed?
8: I would like a clarification on the May 18th minutes Okay, so so page 11 the second of the last paragraph the minute state that I asked whether the closure was helping the city. Um, I don't remember if I was specific enough, but at any rate what I meant to say was it should state. I asked whether the aquatic Center closure was good financially for the city.
0: Trying to see him. It's on what page is that, Councillor?
8: Well, it's page eleven of the May eighteenth minutes. Okay. The second to the last paragraph on that page.
0: So, uh, Councillor Herman, if the closure was helping this, this the city and the intent was to state that, uh, Councillor Herman asked if the closure was well,
8: the, the aquatic, the center, aquatic closure. center closure was She's helping a, the city financially. Specify
1: aquatic center. If the
0: aquatic center closure, okay.
1: We'll make a note of that and that amendment will be included in the uh, motion. Thank you. So if there's no others, could we have a motion?
3: I'd like to f- make a motion to uh, accept the consent calendar. Uh,
7: I'll second that.
1: Okay, motion and a second to approve uh, with item 6C amended and roll call Mr. Estes.
0: Councilor Herman? Aye. Councilor Rocca? Aye. Councilor West?
7: Aye.
0: Uh, Councilor Brownson? Aye. Mayor Jones?
1: Aye. Regular agenda items are open for public comment following deliberation by the council. We'll ask uh, anyone watching remotely um, to use the raised hand function on your Zoom app if you wanna speak to the item. And uh, you'll have three minutes if you do so. So item 7A is a public hearing and resolution for a supplemental budget for the Maritime Memorial Fund number 148.
0: So Oregon Revised Statutes provides guidance for a municipality to hold a public hearing on a supplemental budget to adjust for changes which could not be foreseen when preparing the original budget. The city contracted with uh, a contractor to expand the Maritime Memorial last fiscal year and a new set of concrete and granite walls were installed. It was anticipated all this work would be completed during the uh, 2018-2019 fiscal year, but due to unforeseen delivery issues, that work was not completed until the current fiscal year. Therefore, staff is presenting a resolution for a supplemental budget to recognize $50,000 of additional beginning fund balance and to appropriate $50,000 for the remaining cost to complete the expansion. So tonight it's recommended that the council conduct a public hearing and approve the supplemental budget as presented in the resolution.
1: And so work has been completely finished. Yes,
0: uh, so this is work that uh, complete was completed last summer. And so um, because, um, the uh, contractor could not receive the granite panels um, by uh, the end of June. Uh, there was not money included in the current budget to pay the to pay the uh, the contractor, and so that work was completed. Um, but for we're, as you can see, we have two items that are budget related. We've had some others recently. Um, there's just the need from the uh, the budget standpoint to be able to recognize that there was additional money that was spent in this current fiscal year
1: yeah because i know i had at least one question of well, why are we spending money on a maritime memorial in the middle of this COVID crisis and well this yeah. is work that was done last year yeah. and just, and we're to, just now recording.
0: just to also to clarify that um because this question came into another counselor over the weekend um and the information that I provided was first of all um no general funds are used for the Maritime Memorial. Um, What pays for the Maritime Memorial uh, expansion and construction is citizens who purchase uh, their names, their families' names, uh, to be uh, placed on the memorial. Um, You may recall that there was a loan from the Astor West Urban Renewal District to help pay for this, but those loan payments are uh, being repaid with uh, fees uh, from folks. So no general fund tax dollars are used for construction or for expansion of the Maritime Memorial. That's been the city council's policy for years.
1: Thanks for clarifying that.
3: Yes, council Brownson. And just for further clarification, this isn't a reflection of any additional costs. This is just housekeeping
0: financial. That is correct. There was not any additional cost. It was just purely that Uh, The materials, which were anticipated to be delivered by uh, end of June 2019, were delayed in coming to Astoria um, from the quarry, and since they arrived this current fiscal year, um, we have to amend the budget to be able to recognize that.
1: Okay, we are required to have a public hearing on this matter, so I declare the public hearing open. Are there any members of the public who would like to uh, comment? If so, please use the raised hand function on your Zoom app and we'll uh, ask you to give your name and address and give you three minutes to speak. I'm just picturing the people sitting at home with a cocktail wondering, do I wanna talk about this or not? I'm just, I'm not seeing any hands going up. Even Darryl Moore's not raising his hand. (laughs) Okay, very good. I will declare the public hearing closed and ask ask, uh, for a motion.
3: So I I see a hand clap from uh, Ida Rand. Is that a hand? Okay,
1: from Ida? Hi, right, go ahead, please. Give your name and address.
9: Hi, my name's Jenny Leveled, and I live at 330 Oregon Street. And in this- <laughs> and I am had a question about the cruise line. And if it comes that we do have some sort of, you know, big outbreak, that they can track to one person from
1: so- this cruise so I'm just just as a matter of procedure. So we were just having a oh, public hearing about the Maritime Memorial uh, budget uh, item, and so um, you'd, you're welcome to make a comment uh, at the end of the meeting when we open it up for oh, public. Oh, I'm super sorry. Sorry. That's no. Yeah. That's that's quite all right. That's quite all right.
9: Okay. Just a.
1: Uh, yeah. Okay. So just hold that thought, and um, if there's no other comments regarding the Maritime Memorial Fund item 148 or budget fund 148, we'll uh, proceed with, uh, I think someone started to make a motion. I honestly can't remember.
3: Well, I'm happy to make a motion to uh, approve the resolution for a supplemental budget for the Maritime Memorial Fund number
0: 148. I'll second
1: that. And roll call, Mr. Estes. Councilor Herman?
8: Aye.
0: Councilor Raka, Aye. Councilor
1: West? Aye. Council Brownson? Aye. Councilor, or Mayor Jones? Aye. Item 7B is a resolution to update the uh, parks drop-in passes and Ocean View Cemetery fee schedules F1 and F3. And I think we have to have a public hearing on this as well. Is that right? Yes.
0: Yeah, so this will just be, uh, um, as uh, this deals with fee increases, uh, state statutes require that uh, you offer to take comments on, on that. So uh, this... Uh, fee schedule update pertains to fees charged by the parks department at the aquatic center and also ocean view cemetery so to attract new customers and increase revenue and to consolidate more services into one location which was a recommendation of the 2016 parks master plan fitness classes will be relocated and offered solely at the aquatic center once that facility reopens and returns to normal operations following the COVID-19 emergency. It's anticipated that the rec center facility will transition to be used uh, for child care related programs as budgetary constraints um, allow for more of those services to restart. This change will necessitate changes to the nomenclature of the fees charged and that's noted in the resolution. So in September of 2019, there was a temporary uh, midday drop off rate for the Aquatic Center, which was uh, implemented to determine if a reduced cost during low attendance periods would entice more users. This uh, did not prove to bring in more, more people during the midday, and, and so it's proposed to be eliminated. And then uh, to assist the uh, Astrea Parks Recreation and Community Foundation's commitment to providing scholarships for local individuals to access their health and wellness opportunities provided by the Parks Department, it's been proposed to establish a scholarship day pass for use at the Aquatic Center and to do away with the current model of tracking scholarship recipients um, and billing the foundation on a quarterly basis. Uh, this was actually initiated by the foundation in order to allow them to better uh, have, have better fiscal control on how scholarship funds uh, were encumbered. This new scholarship day pass, which is proposed, uh, would allow the foundation to purchase vouchers for drop-off, uh, to drop-in use, and dis- they would distribute them to local nonprofit organizations that serve low-income populations. So with regards to the cemetery, in 2019, council approved fee increases to support operations and maintenance of the cemetery by increasing prices by 10%. The practice of 10% increases had been put in place yearly since 2015 to bring prices nearer to the regional market for services provided. In this last March, the council adopted the Ocean View Cemetery Master Plan and the master plan recommends limiting future fee increases at the cemetery to 5% from 2020 to 2029 and then reducing them to 3% annually from 2030 onwards. it's recommended that a 5% increase be put in place um, this year um, per the Cemetery Master Plan. So our Parks Advisory Board has reviewed and recommended approval of the fee updates. And tonight it's recommended that council approve the fee resolution, which updates park fee schedule F-1 and also Ocean View Cemetery fee schedule F-3.
1: Okay, so I'll open a public hearing into that. Is there any uh, comment from council or
7: the public? I know with regards to the cemetery, the 10% increase is going, sounds, I think I balked at that a little bit, Um, but I believe I also read in, in in the documentation that it had not been raised for, was it 10 years, Brett?
0: So, actually, there have been 10% increases um, approved by council since 2015. What is proposed now is a 5% increase. So, um, it's it's been um, increasing by 10% per year since 2015 to become more in line with uh, market rates for cemetery services. This year, it's proposed at 5%.
7: And then at what point, and I apologize for misreading that, at what point does it go, once we kind of get uh, where we should be with the fees, when does it, remind me again, when it goes to 3%? So yes.
0: Yeah. so the cemetery master plan has recommended 5% from 2020, from this year through 2029, and then 3% from
1: 2030 onward.
7: Thank you for that clarification.
1: And we could come back at any time, three years from now, if we think it needs to go back to 10% or down to 2%, That's we correct. can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Any other comments?
8: Well, I would just say, I think the Parks Foundation's idea for um, starting to use uh, day pass for scholarship recipients, it makes a lot of sense and sounds a lot simpler and cleaner. So I love that idea.
7: I would agree with that.
6: Well, I would like to move that uh, we approve the resolution to update the park's drop-in passes and uh, the Ocean View Cemetery and key schedules. We have to close the public hearing first, right?
1: Well, I think technically you can second the motion and then I can close the public hearing. I'll second it. Okay, and I still don't see any further discussion, so public hearing is closed. And roll call please, Mr. Estes.
0: Councilor Herman. Aye. Councilor Rocca. Aye. Councilor West. Aye. Councilor Brownson. Aye. Mayor Jones.
1: Aye. Item 7C is a resolution to transfer appropriations within Capital Improvement Fund 102 budget for fiscal year 2019-20.
0: So, uh, Mayor and Council, this is, again, another year-end budgetary uh, item that's, uh, as our Finance Director, Susan Brooks, has been going through and and working through closing out the books for the current fiscal year. And Oregon Revised Statutes provides the guidance for the transfer of appropriations within a fund uh, when authorized by the governing body. In this case, it's within the Capital Improvement Fund and uh, the budget for the Capital Improvement Fund did not anticipate the change in lease cost due to the procurement of hybrid police department vehicles, which were secured uh, this fiscal year. It was determined that hybrid vehicles would have overall cost savings in the long run due to reduced fuel consumption and a transfer in the amount of $700 is required between materials and services to debt service in order to account for the additional lease cost. So tonight it's recommended that council approve the transfer of $700 from the capital improvement fund materials and services to debt service.
6: Well, this is a lofty amount. Yes. uh, (laughs) I certainly would move to approve the transfer of appropriations within the capital fund 102 budget for fiscal year 2019, 2020.
8: I'll second that uh roll call mr
1: estes councillor herman
0: aye councillor Rocco, aye councillor west aye Councilor brownson aye mayor jones
1: aye item 7d is extension to the deadline for the use of employee personal leave
0: so the city provides benefits to eligible employees with uh, personal leave each fiscal year And personal leave is available to utilize with prior approval from the supervisor as needed and is paid when requested during the fiscal year. Unused hours at the end of the fiscal year do not carry over. So the intent of personal leave is to accommodate an employee's need to conduct personal business or attend personal appointments that conflict with their regular workday. In this fiscal year, an employee's ability to utilize personal leave was impacted due to business closures and in certain circumstances, staffing requirements, which could not accommodate additional time away from work. um, And in consideration of the extraordinary circumstances related to the COVID-19 pandemic, staff would propose to allow employees to utilize uh, this leave um, for a certain period next fiscal year. It's recommended that the mayor and council approve an extension of time for employees to utilize outstanding fiscal year 2019-20 personal leave, and it's proposed that balances remaining at June 30th, 2020 may be utilized through December 31st, 2020. So it's providing an additional six months for folks to utilize uh, that personal leave.
1: Hey, any uh, comments?
6: This certainly seems considerate and fair to me. Agree. I
7: agree.
1: Agreed. All right.
3: Well, I'll make a motion um, to approve the extension to the deadline for the use of employee personal leave.
8: I'll second that.
1: All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? All right. Next will be uh, new business. Is there any new business from the council?
7: I think I just want to say thank you. Um, I forgot in my report at the beginning. Thank you to everybody, the Lower Columbia Q Center who helped with pride this last weekend. Um, I was able to participate in some of the events and uh, I know it's a challenge when a lot of those um, celebrations have to, have to be held virtually, um, but they just, they did a great job Um, over the weekend, keeping everybody safe and um, still honoring the cause. So I think that's all I have.
1: Thank you.
8: Is the citizen who wanted to speak earlier still online?
1: Yes. so now I'll open it up for public comment on any uh, topic that wasn't a regular agenda item. And so the individual, under listed as Ida Rand. If you would still like to make your comment, please go ahead. We're unmuting you now.
9: Hi, I'm there.
1: Yes, we can yeah. hear you. Okay, great.
9: Um, my question is about um, litigation like in the future because COVID is not just a health crisis, it's an economic crisis and we have a, a large vulnerable population. So, and they can figure out where these outbreaks they can trace them to where they come from if it comes from the cruise ship do they have any financial obligation to help our community
1: yeah i've been in a lot of discussions with public health regarding uh contact tracing that's conducted after a positive test result and uh, liability has not come up in any discussion and i i would not I wouldn't uh, hesitate. I would hesitate to make any kind of statement from a legal perspective on that. Um, I can't, okay. I really can't answer that. because I'm
9: just concerned with the financial state of COVID. You know, what, what it does to communities financially. Like Astoria cannot stomach a huge influx of sick because it costs a lot. Right. And so I'm just wondering, if these cruise ships, where obviously profit is their motive, and you know it's working for them, if they have any obligation to Astoria, or we as historians can say we have a, we're all masks. If you disembark from a cruise ship without a mask, you are breaking Astoria rules. You know, is there something that can guarantee that the social distancing policies, which have allowed us to reopen, are implemented?
1: Well, I can I can tell you that. Um, the discussions with county public health, which have been pretty extensive regarding this particular matter, have involved looking in great detail at the protocols that are in place uh, on with the cruise lines for their screening of their potential passengers, precautions aboard the vessel, and guidance to them when they get to each uh, port. and uh, I'm not the public health expert, but the public health department has reviewed very closely, not only the protocols on the ships, but uh, have gotten in-depth feedback from each of our local hospitals regarding their ability to um, to be able to uh, work with any of these types of activities. But as far as legal liability, no, that's not something we have a, a knowledge base on.
7: Mayor Jones, can I speak to this briefly, if that's okay? Go, go ahead. Um, it's it's it is a good question. It's um, as the executive director of a dance studio that's cautiously reopening this week, um, there have been a lot of questions and discussions around liability to the point where uh, you know, do you have a student or a passenger in this case? Sign a waiver of some sort. Um, there seem to be more questions than answers, but it it is a, I mean, it is an interesting to think a thing to think about. I can only assume uh, that cruise ships would. I would hope that they would also be having this discussion, um, not just to uh, protect themselves, but also any financial impact that it may have on the town that the cruise ship is, is visiting at the time. So, um, it, it might be an interesting thing for the County to the, to look to consider, to look into, um, regarding cruise ship liability. So I just know it's, it's been a question for a, a lot of entities reopening and, and how to approach that. Um,
3: yeah, I, I think that it's, it's, a. Uh it's a huge question. And I think we've got a long way to go before we can start answering these liabilities because if you, um, I mean, this is not the big, you know, three, $4,000 person, uh, uh, cruise ship. These are smaller numbers, not unlike all the visitors that come down from Portland by car individually, there will be 250 of them. It just will be in separate vehicles and when, uh, be disembarking at the same time. So I, I think the best we can hope for, if we plan on being open for business and to allow tourists to uh, stay in our our town, we're just going to have to count on them doing the right thing because it, this is so hard to uh, police. And I know that um, I'm with the Astoria Yacht Club, and you know we're talking about. Uh, racing our sailboats out there and we're accustomed to having crews uh, on board and it's really tough to social distance so we're trying to navigate can we really do this and um, what if somebody gets sick on the boat where does the liability stand is it with the captain is it the yacht club I mean we really don't know can we put it on a piece of paper you know uh, a waiver for uh, captains and crew to sign but You know, these are just all, we just don't know. So, we just have to make our best judgment.
1: So, thank you for the question. And are there any other uh, members of the public who would like to make public comment? Nancy, is that Nancy Montgomery?
10: Yes, it's Nancy Montgomery. I'm multi devicing to get this to work. So my name is Nancy Montgomery, and I live at 1564 Fifth Street in Astoria, Oregon. And I want to thank you guys for allowing um, the public to speak. Of course, you know you have to. But um, for um, Chief Spaulding for being um, available and be- and continuing to remain available and open for discussion. I have three questions, and I will state them briefly, and then I'll take my answer off the air. Um, One, what have you guys learned from your research from other cities about separating protesters? I I received some information that you would be researching what other cities are doing to try and prevent escalation, rather than having to wait and de-escalate. Number two is, um, say, the same thing happened outside of a bar um, at 10 p.m. where someone was shouting down someone else. And the police were called. Um, how would that be handled? And is there a way to, you know, prevent that? Or what would the shouter be asked to do in that scenario? And three, um, how would you recommend protesters preparing or responding should that scenario that Robert very aptly described uh, should that come to pass again? Um, how do you how do you recommend we respond to minimize escalation? Thank you.
1: Thank you, Nancy. Chief will uh, take those.
2: Hi, Nancy. Uh, Jeff Spaulding here. How you doing? Hi,
10: great. Thank you.
2: Nancy, um, one one of the things I touched on earlier was the issue of separating protesters, and there's a lot of challenges with that. We've actually done some research with the city attorney and with the district attorney's office as far as you know the feasibility of that. Um, the the you know, from what we've learned, it is constitutionally um, acceptable to regulate um, where protesters can uh gather and and they call it time place and manner so uh when it comes to the place we have some ability to control where protesters protest but we also have to do it based on public safety it can't just be an arbitrary decision the other problem is that first off we don't have that ordinance but secondarily uh, many cities actually require protesters to file a permit whether it's a fee or not And in our particular case, we don't require a permit. So most of the time when we have a protest, it's just a pop-up protest, and we don't always know where it's going to be uh, or where the counter-protesters are going to show up. Many of the protests we've had in the past here have been very peaceful. We work very closely with the organizers, and um, I've reached out to them. I give them my cell number, and I encourage them to call us if they have any concerns or they see others that come that may be disruptive. So we work very closely with the protest organizers, but as you might imagine, uh, there's not always the – same level of cooperation from some individuals that might be considered counter-protesters. So although the idea seems to be, you know, makes sense on some level, there's um, some very big challenges. Uh, You asked what we've learned from other cities. What we've learned from Portland is they tried to pass this ordinance about two years ago. Uh, They met with a lot of resistance, including the ACLU, and ultimately the ordinance was not passed. What we learned with a city in New York was that they actually implemented an ordinance which required a 30 foot distance uh, from protesters and counter protesters. And the first major event they had with a significant turnout, the ordinance was completely ignored and they weren't even able to enforce it. We would have similar issues here. It would only be an infraction level offense, so the best we could do would be to issue citations and that would tie up many of our resources. So, although on its face it sounds like potentially a good ordinance, Uh, We would have some fairly significant logistical concerns, but if it's Council's direction for us to look at this closer, that's clearly something we would do. Uh, your second question on how we would handle a, uh, breaking up two parties in a bar fight. Uh, I would say that's a completely different situation. Obviously, we're tasked with keeping public safety in, and, and in that particular case, we probably have a crime of at least an assault type thing or a disorderly <coughs> conduct. So we have some ability to control the parties, and, uh, if it's something that's an arrest situation, clearly we're going to take one or both parties away and the situation is solved. Um... And then, I'm sorry, your third question, that's all I remembered so far.
1: Yeah, the last one was, oh, what you. advice would you have for the protesters? How should they prepare to deal with people like this?
2: So, um, you know, one, one of the things that we do see here is that uh, whether you're on the side of the protesters or the counter protesters, we've actually seen some activity from some of the protesters that would be considered um, i would say instigating behavior and you know it's it's unfortunate uh, you know the protesters are out there to you know uh, Protests their particular cause. They're generally obeying the laws, but the counter-protesters come out and they, they tend to get in their face. But we've also seen some of the protesters uh, counter back, and they'll hold signs in the counter-protesters' face. So we are seeing some behavior that's antagonistic on both sides. So uh, my, my best advice would be just to follow the laws, stay in your own side. If you do observe particular behaviors, make sure you do give us a call um, or bring it to the attention if there's an officer in the area. <coughs> That's, that's the best way for us to address the behavior. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, there are times when we may only be able to simply take the information. We will contact you later, get all the information we need to be able to prepare a report to send to the district attorney's office. But in more extreme cases, we will take action on the spot.
10: Thank you very much. Um, the The second question wasn't necessarily um, the bar scenario about uh, physical harassment, but just the shout down, um, where you know you would probably ask someone to move along or, or what have you. I suppose in a, a matter of freedom of speech, that's. Um, not as much of an option. Um, The the challenge and the fear is that yes, with such antagonistic counter protesting, someone will snap or get flicked too many times or feel they need to defend a teenager or at least step in between, and then that could be seen as antagonistic back as well. Um, So yeah, anything else?
2: Well, no, the only thing I would say to your second scenario is it's not exactly an apples-to-apples comparison, and that's because in a scenario of a private business, like, for example, a bar or restaurant, they have the ability to have that individual (coughs) trespass, so they could ask us to simply ask the person to leave, and and they would be in the right to do so, and we'd be legally permissible to have that person trespass. All likelihood, we would just tell them to leave, but if they refuse to leave, we'd be able to arrest them on that offense. So... um, not sure that's quite on point but that that was how we would handle a situation like that
10: yeah i've had a number of encounters where we've called the police at three cups coffee house out front where carly has and they've come in very beautifully um, de-escalated the scenario where well, there was no physical violence but shouting outside in the parking lot kind of thing so the exterior is the question Okay, well, we'll do our best, and I, I know that the young woman who's leading the protest is doing her best to encourage people to not engage, not engage, not engage. So thank you so much.
2: Yeah, you're welcome, and feel free to call me if you have any other questions. Thank you.
1: Any other members of the uh, public? Okay, after I adjourn... Oh, okay, sorry. Roy Brewer. Roy we're unmuting you now, you're unmuted.
3: Am I unmuted? Yes. Hi, uh, this is Roy Brewer, 24 Skyline Place in Astoria. Um, we've I've had some trouble with the volume and difference, so I'm not absolutely sure I caught everything that was being said, but as far as I know, I've missed uh, item 6D on your agenda.
0: That's Mr. Brewer, your liquor license was approved
3: thank oh, you God. very
1: much <laughs> any other uh, comments uh, Nancy
10: no I wasn't commenting I was applauding the liquor license oh okay <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>
1: thanks thank you for the applause okay if there are no more public comments after we adjourn the City Council meeting we will immediately go into the Astoria Development Commission. What? Cheryl Conway. Conway, Please, uh, unmuting you now. Go ahead. Now you're unmuted. Uh, Ms. Conway, you're unmuted if you would like to speak. Okay, we had a raised hand from Cheryl Conway. We've unmuted you, but um, if you've changed your mind, that's that's fine too. Anybody else? Okay, City Council is adjourned, and the Astoria Development Commission is convened. A roll call.
0: We have uh, Councilor West
7: here.
6: Commissioner Brownson? Here.
0: Commissioner Rocco? Sorry,
8: I can't hear you. Commissioner Rocco? Uh,
0: Here. Commissioner Herman? Here. And Chair Jones?
1: I am here. And so we will, are there any changes to the agenda? No changes to the agenda. Okay, item 4A is an executive session, so we will, be kicking everyone off except for the counselors and Mr. Henning's guard. Anybody else?
0: Um, and the media.
1: Oh, and the media, of course. No other department heads for this one?
0: Um, we will have, uh, um, we'll have Ms. Leatherman who is in the audience from the Community Development Department here, and uh, perhaps uh, we'll also, uh, if uh, we have uh, Public Works Director Jeff Harrington still on the line, we can keep him as well.
1: Congratulations, Jeff. Okay, we'll wait for all those folks to be to offline. See you, John. Chief, thank you very much. Thank you.
8: In Who's in your in lap, to- Roger? in toledo
6: uh, Archie.
8: The big boy.
6: Big boy, yeah, he's here.
8: <laughs> so okay. Oh my.
0: Don't sorry. We have, we have to. We have to stop one recorder and start another.
7: Okay. Hi, Archie. <laughs> <laughs> he thinks he's a
1: cat. Good boy, or good girl.